Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they, all, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse the la their languages there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad broad over the face of all the earth. And then Acts 2, 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, a crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one of them heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood for the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Both Arden and Allie are finished with school. Michael has this week yet. 
and they didn't, but let's imagine uh, one of them had a big final science fair project and that they were working away at it for a few days. And imagine I decided to sneak a peek at how it's going. Step into the room and say the same thing that God says in our text. I look at it and say, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. If you were to hear me say that, you might think, wow, that's a proud father. I mean, that must be some project. But now imagine realizing that I, I'm not saying that not uh, out of pride. I'm saying it out of alarm. What sort of project might that be? What would make me say that? And then conduct some sort of sabotage to make sure they get a failing grade. Jen, have you seen the kids' science fair project? It's a meth lab. Hide the Sudafed. But God sees humanity's science fair project, says this is just the beginning of what they will do, and sabotages the whole thing. Why? Well, text tells us a few things about this people. Uh, they've developed brick technology. Uh, they want to build a city with a tower. And they do this to avoid being scattered over the earth. Now, there is something about that that's not in keeping with God's mandate to humanity. They're told to be fruitful and fill the earth. And this is what happens uh, after God intervenes in the situation. They, they scatter. But again, God doesn't mention their failure to fulfill this mandate as the reason for intervening. Uh, it's what they can accomplish. Some argue that God appears to be threatened by their competence. You know, today it's a tower, tomorrow it's the iPhone. Who will need me, the big G-O-D, when they can G-O-O-G-L-E? But I, I don't think that's it. Uh, the text suggests that the concern here is about the concentration of power. And part of that concentration of power is the proximity of the people. They're all living in one area. The other concern is language. That's, in fact, the first thing we learn. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And that may seem a little redundant, but the truth is, my kids and I speak the same language, but not always the same words. Um, words, though, are the means by which we interpret the world and assign meaning and value to our experience. An infant can't distinguish herself from her environment, has no idea that there's a point at which she ends and the rest of the world begins. But then we provide her with words. Mama, dada. Words help her not only understand what things are, but how to value them. What sorts of behaviors um, are good? What sorts of behaviors are bad? Words, in that sense, have an incredible amount of power for good and evil. Uh, a group of Victorian young women and became sort of media sensations for their refusal to eat. Um, and, and, then, and, and the claim that they had spiritual powers that accompanied their refusal to eat. Some claim to have been fed celestial food provided by angels, I think. 
Anyway, historian uh, Joan Jacob Brumberg suspects that this phenomena was likely the result of words, specifically the Victorian definition of womanhood, which was pretty rigid. You know, to refuse to conform to that definition would result in having other words put on you, other labels slapped on you. You would become improper. You would be neurotic. You would be sinful. And these girls had so little power, so little control. The only words they had been given reinforced that rigid definition. It makes sense that they see food as the one opportunity to assert control. One way they might resist being defined by society without being condemned by it, thus the spiritual powers. But this act of resistance ultimately killed them. They starved. Uh, Broomberg's book, called Fasting Girls, uh, contains illustrations of contraptions devised by Victorian doctors for treating other girls who refused to eat. Um, and if Broomberg's right, and I think she is, that refusing to eat was a way of asserting control, then these contraptions just reinforced the problem. They were an attempt to make these girls uh, powerless in that area as well. Anyway, maybe this is what the passage is getting at. Uh, the, Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, wrote a reflection on a line pop popularized by a Russian linguist, saying, a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. Words shape our understanding of the world. But whose words? With who's, who gets to define those words? Well, it's whoever can back their words and their definitions with an army and a navy and doctors and their contraptions. They get to define it. And when everyone uses the same words with the same definitions, well, huh, you can do just about anything. Nothing, no one can stand in your way. Many of you probably heard the news coming out of the sub Southern Baptist Church in recent days. News that the church had been deliberately undermining efforts to hold abusive pastors accountable for their actions, shaming or simply dismissing the women who brought charges against those pastors. You know, it's worth noting that, by and large, Southern Baptists take a strong stance against the ordination of women. In the minds of many, it is your stance on that issue that determines whether you believe in the authority of Scripture, the Word of God. Now, I won't go so far as to suggest that they take that strong stance as part of their cover-up of abuse, but it certainly helped. I mean, do you really think this would have gone on for as long as it did with some women among those in charge? No. It went on for as long as it did because those in leadership spoke the same language, used all the same words, and they could do anything. Nothing stood in their way. Maybe even a clear example of this is the conflict in Ukraine. Russian media refuses to call it a war. It's a military operation. Certainly not an invasion. No, it's denazification. 
according to Putin. Yeah, which to us seems ridiculous. After all, Zelensky is Jewish. Um, but then you learn, well, that word has particular meaning within a Russian context. It refers to the Nazis' attempt to establish the Third Reich, to, to create an empire. The irony there, of course, is that if anyone's guilty of that version of Nazification, it's Putin who is seeking to build, rebuild the Soviet Union. It, I mean, this is what Orwell describes in 1984. You know, you control the language, control the means by which they can interpret the world, and you control the people. Then you can do anything. And God sees this. And God knows where this leads. God sees this. God knows where this leads. And says, come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. Now, you might agree that consolidation of power and uniformity of speech is dangerous. But the consequence of God's intervention here poses its own problems, right? Instead of consolidation, we have fragmentation. We have tribalism. We have, well, confusion. I mean, the Victorians defined the sexes far too rigidly. We, on the other hand, have no working definition of what it means to be a man or a woman. Uh, we're in a position where we sort of leave it to the individual to define it for him or her or themselves or themselves. I suspect that many of you may have heard the pronoun Z for the first time right here. And, I, you know, maybe it sounds like another language, but that is where that's the situation we're in. Uh, Luke takes great pains to underscore the fact that there is representation from all over on the day of Pentecost. I mean, it's like a roll call of the ancient Near East confirming that humanity has, in fact, spread out, scattered. The people there that day come from all over. It's a story about the wide variety of languages those people speak and the confusion that results from that. But of course, it stands in contrast to the Genesis story too. Because when the Spirit descends on the disciples, they begin to proclaim the message of the gospel in that wide variety of languages. And this has caused a great confusion because, well, as the listeners point out, uh, these are Galileans. You know, Galilee is sort of the backwoods of, of Judah. They don't, they don't speak exotic languages. And yet, everyone is getting the message in their native tongue. So here again, God is intervening. God is overcoming the fragmentation and division, but not in a way that consolidates power, that erases diversity, that demands everyone speak one language and use the same words. No, it affirms that diversity, even as it overcomes the fragmentation and division. This is rather profound. Not always something the church has been comfortable with. You know, the, the Catholic church, has only been conducting mass in local languages for about 60 years. And it's still a point of controversy in some circles. I came across one reflection by a priest who was saying, oh, this is such a terrible compromise. After all, there is only one cross, one Lord, one baptism. It makes only sense that there be one mass conducted in the same 
language. And that may not be our fight, but uh, I suspect that we can relate to the impulse. Um, you know, certainly we've all heard stories about churches whom we'd say gone, have gone too far, that have compromised too much in their efforts to speak the people's language, to gain a hearing. For example, you know, I myself, I, I always cringe a bit when I see that sticker on the back of a car that says, Nehemiah Fight Club. Uh, and I'm always like, ugh, really? Are we really going to try to translate the gospel into the language of testosterone? But, you know, I have to watch myself. I can be too dismissive. I can be a bit of a snob. Um, and I suspect that that's because I have a babel impulse. I have a desire to impose a language on people, to want them to speak like I do, to see the world like I do, to evaluate people in terms of whether or not they're useful in my little building project. But, but that's not God's project. That is not what it means to live by the Spirit, that Spirit that's poured out on Pentecost. You know, I think that where uh, Jen works offers a pretty good illustration of what living into Pentecost looks like. Mosaic began after its founder realized that people in the trans community were finding it hard to get medical care. And they are very aware that this is a population that in addition to their medical needs has experienced a good deal of rejection from friends and families and churches because they don't fit the traditional definitions of gender. And Mosaic has a remarkable commitment to serving that community and not just, again, not just in terms of providing medications and therapies, but to counteract all that other rejection as well. It's a commitment to the basic humanity of each and every patient and to avoid language and labeling that reduces them to something less than that. You know, when a patient is demanding or cranky, they work to check the impulse that wants to label that patient a problem. In a sense, it's about learning to speak that person's language, to see the demanding patient as a strong self-advocate or the cranky patient as someone who has more on their plate than they can handle. They are people, not problems. They are people, not inconveniences. I mean, that is not easy. In fact, I would say it may even be impossible. It may even be impossible to remain committed to doing that if you expect people to return the favor. You know, that by working to see them as fully human, that they're going to see you as fully human and not just a recruit for whatever Babel Tower they want to build. Now, to be able to do this work, it requires recognizing that this is not just a habit you're trying to develop, that it's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. It's, it's a group project. The God who, loves, who so loves you, who so values your humanity, that God made a home there. This is the work you undertake together. 
It's how your life is being integrated into the story of Pentecost, into its mission, that mission that welcomes diversity, dignifies individuality, and heals a fragmented world. It's how you, together, you, are able to say, no matter who you are, where you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.